You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I finally had a quiet one, or as quiet as it gets around here these days. Just one work screening and great British Bake Off night with my friends. No movies this week. I did see the holdovers at a work thing, which I did very much enjoy, but that's all I'm going to say about that. Strike updates. There was more back and forth this week. The ball is currently in the SAG after court. As of Saturday morning when I'm recording, as the studio sent them their most recent deal yesterday afternoon, yesterday evening, very unlikely there'll be a resolution today. If a deal is not struck by this weekend, though, film and TV crews are pretty much guaranteed not to work until the new year. Like I said last week, a few films that were mostly shot when the strike happened will likely finish up if a deal is struck, probably before Thanksgiving. It happens after Thanksgiving, nothing, nothing's going back. But that'll only be like a week or two of employment for the film crews who have been effectively off work since July. There are reality show shooting, not everyone is completely shut out, but the vast, vast majority of the film crews are not working right now. So all in all, not great. And if a deal is not made by this coming week, Spring TV is probably getting messed up as well. So a lot is riding on getting this deal done on both sides within the next like five days or something like that. So with that cheery news, let's get on to this week's topic, or I guess in this case, this month's topic. This month, we're not only looking into the lives of three of the best-known child stars to ever grace the silver screen, but also how their careers change the landscape of Hollywood or pop culture or the world or how we see child actors in one form or another. This week, a name many of you might associate more with a mocktail than a person, but the famous beverage was named after Hollywood's first major child star, who to this day is still the youngest recipient of any type of Oscar. She also proved that there is life beyond the silver screen. This week, the life and legacy of Shirley Temple. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. This is the Candyland Hour for all good children. The orchestra will play our theme song. You know that song, don't you? Sure I do. Well, then sing it. Come on. Come on, Charlie, sing it. In 
hindsight, the fervor and, frankly, sexual undertones projected onto a six-year-old was super not okay. But back in the 1930s, that didn't stop the Vatican from sending a representative from the church to ensure that the dancing darling who'd enchanted the world was indeed a little girl and not a little person masquerading as one. But no, this singing, dancing little angel from Los Angeles was the real deal. Shirley Jane Temple was born on April 23, 1928, at a Santa Monica hospital. She was the third child of Gertrude and George, the latter of whom was a banker. The couple had had two older boys, and Gertrude was desperate for a little girl, so Shirley was her wish fulfilled. Gertrude encouraged her daughter to develop her singing, dancing, and acting talents from basically the moment she could walk after she discovered that Shirley had perfect pitch. This woman played the tambourine for her child as a baby to also instill in her a sense of rhythm. Around the age of two, three years old, basically when she had enough hair, Gertrude also began styling Shirley's hair into the ringlets, which had become a major part of Shirley's signature look when she entered the picture business. While taking classes at the Meglin Dance School in Santa Monica, a gateway school for child actors, Shirley was spotted by Charles Lamont, a casting director for a small production company known as Educational Pictures. Lamont liked Shirley's vibe and invited her to audition for them. He ultimately signed her to a contract in 1932 when she was just three years old. After that, her father gave up banking to become her agent and financial advisor. Educational Pictures began releasing a series of shorts called Baby Burlesques, yes you heard that right, which were 10-minute comedy shorts that satired recent drama films or events using toddlers in every role. Basically, kids bop, but in film form and with way younger kids doing things kids probably shouldn't be doing, even if it's just them being funny and cute. It's a little, it's a little ick-inducing from a 2023 uh, perspective. Obviously, Shirley couldn't read. She was three years old, so she would learn her lines phonetically. After each day of filming wrapped, she'd go home with her mother, who would repeat the lines to Shirley while she was in the bath until she had them memorized. Then Shirley'd go to set the next day knowing everybody's lines, which is, you know, pretty impressive for a three-year-old. But it later came out that when Shirley got tested, she had an IQ of 155. So this is a very, very bright little girl. Shirley would later say about all of this, quote, I thought every child worked because I was born into it. Shirley became the breakout star of Baby Burlesques, and Educational promoted her to 20-minute comedies in the Frolics of Youth series. Shirley played Mary Lou Rogers, the youngest sister in a modern suburban family. Shirley and her fellow child co-stars modeled for breakfast cereals and other products to fund production costs. She was about five at the oldest during this time. 1933's Stand Up and Cheer would end up being the film that the world at large would notice Shirley Temple. The polka dot dress she wore in her song and dance scene in that film would later serve as the model for the dress used on the first Shirley Temple dolls in 1934. This is not done at educational pictures, mind you. This was done when Shirley was lent out to Fox as was practice of the day. It was not unusual for studios to lend their actors out to get a little bit extra money if they didn't have a project for them. Less than two years after Shirley had signed her first film contract, pretty much every major studio in town knew the name and face of this precocious blonde child. 
While Shirley would perform on camera, her mother was on the other side, being just professional stage mom, saying, sparkle, Shirley, sparkle, before the camera rolled. Her parents also made sure Shirley was kept away from other child actors. Her mother also ensured that any young actors or actresses who might have stayed Shirley had their parts substantially cut. This cutthroat behavior gained her few friends in Hollywood, which was frankly how the studio wanted it. Actor Slim Somerville was one of the few who dared to openly give Gertrude any kind of shit when he said, quote, So you're the goose that laid the golden egg. Shirley was signed by the Fox Film Corporation in 1934. They immediately loaned her out to Paramount, where she made Little Miss Marker. The film was a smash hit, making up half of its budget at one theater in New York City alone. Paramount tried to buy Shirley's contract from Fox, who vehemently refused. The young thespian with the corkscrew curls and infectious optimism proved to be an overnight sensation and a top earner for the studio virtually overnight. Shirley's first Fox film on her contract was Baby Take a Bow, named after the song she'd sang in Stand Up and Cheer. This film, like most of her roles in this early, early days, would basically show Shirley as more or less herself, a version of herself, just in a pretend situation. Also, in these early years, most of her characters were, in fact, named Shirley. In 1934, so when she was six, five, six years old, Shirley starred in eight films. Her song and dance routine to the song On the Good Ship Lollipop in 1934's Bright Eyes earned her a specially made Mini Academy Award in 1935 for Outstanding Personality of 1934. After the release of this film, every studio in Hollywood was on the lookout for their next child star, which would lead to a huge trend in film starring children, but no one got as close to the sun as Shirley in these early days. In a time where, if you can believe, people went even crazier for movie stars or musicians than they do now. The musicians had an easier time because there were no music videos. So unless they appeared in like some kind of a short, people didn't necessarily know what they looked like. But movie stars did not have that thing. People knew what movie stars looked like. And they caused public. Just think of like all the Taylor Swift stuff and and time it by 10. It was way it, it was way more unhinged back then. And knowing that the studio wanted to ensure that Shirley was kept away from the public at large, lest she be kidnapped or God knows what else. To keep her from feeling too pent up at home, they built her a bowling alley and a soda fountain inside the temple home. The studio also told people she was a year younger than she actually was, as if this would magically prolong her youth. They also claimed that Shirley had never taken a dance class, which was inherently untrue. That was how she was discovered. The fact was, Shirley had become a beacon of joy for many people who were down and out due to the Great Depression. This is right in the thick of the Great Depression. Audiences would flock to the theaters and for 90 minutes or so have their spirits uplifted by this singing, dancing child. A nationwide parasocial attachment formed. President Franklin D. Roosevelt called Shirley, quote, Little Miss Miracle for raising the public's morale during the Great Depression, even going so far as to say, quote, as long as our country has Shirley Temple, we will be all right. The Temple family was invited to a cookout at their Hyde Park home during which time Shirley smacked the first lady on the ass with a pebble from her slingshot. The Secret Service was none too pleased with this, according to Shirley. Though I'm sure her parents were a little bit proud because the lifelong Republican temples were wary of going and visiting a Democratic president. 
Fox also took advantage of Shirley without raising her salary by selling dolls of her likeness, like I mentioned earlier, of which Shirley would receive no cut from. Soon, Gertrude would manage to get her daughter a well-deserved raise that multiplied her salary nearly sevenfold. So from $100, $150 a week to $1,000 a week. Her mother would also receive a stipend of $250 a week for her. And going forward, Gertrude and George would control the endorsement deals and merchandising situations for their daughter. By this point, Shirley had her own house on the lot, complete with child-sized furniture, as well as her own private teacher, makeup artist, and basically anything that she could have designated solely for her. She had that, so she didn't have to be around the other children. She also had a special detective in charge of her well-being when she was off the Fox lot. This was done to protect their investment. Shirley's box office appeal was one of the catalysts for Fox being bought slash merged by 20th Century Pictures in 1935, which changed the studio from Fox and 20th Century Pictures to 20th Century Fox. Quote, they didn't buy the Fox studio, Fox executive Winfield Sheehan later said. They bought Shirley Temple. Shirley became Hollywood's top box office attraction in 1935, and she held that title until 1938, until our subject two weeks from now took her crown. A survey of young girls that first year discovered that Shirley Temple was the person they all wished to emulate, beating out Amelia Earnhardt and Eleanor Roosevelt. Like so many actors and child actors that would follow, Shirley's private life became forfeit. Magazines and papers and the like would publish articles about how her mother got Shirley's hair in those tight little spirals, where the family went on vacation, what they did when they were on vacation. There were newsreels of this, like, six, seven-year-old by this point, appearing, like, just on camera, just, like, quote-unquote, on vacation that the studio definitely didn't pay for. They they did. Um, There's also, like, videos of her playing with other children, just like, look at this normal little girl doing normal little girl things, and isn't she's so cute and people would flock to see these newsreels too it's like this is a little kid why are all these adult people so obsessed with this little kid like the little girls fine but like there was a lot of adults very obsessed with this little child as very creepy now in charge of Shirley's image use to a degree, the Temples oversaw the release of Shirley Temple paper dolls, dress patterns, sheet music, storybooks about their daughter, pretty much whatever they could think of that was affordable. That's why most of it was paper because it was still the Great Depression. And of course, there's a non-alcoholic beverage named for her, which, depending on the stories was invented sometime in Hollywood, probably during the 1930s. The most popular version is that Shirley and her family or some studio people were at the Brown Derby, which was a famous Hollywood restaurant that is no longer here because nothing's sacred. And obviously the seven-year-old couldn't have booze, so the bartender made this drink for her. Ironically, Shirley Temple does not like the Shirley Temple. She thinks it's too sweet, or she thought it was too sweet. For those of you who don't know, a Shirley Temple is supposed to be made with ginger ale with some grenadine and then a cherry for garnish. Though now many people substitute ginger ale with lemonade soda because ginger ale's more egregious to children than like Sprite or 7-Up. If you want it dirty, you add vodka or rum to it, which is apparently a drink the Zoomers absolutely love, or at least the ones I'm around. If you add dark rum to it, you get a Shirley Temple Black in homage to her married name. I've had one. They are delicious. I don't like sweet drinks that much anymore. I'm in my 30s now. And I did my dance with the vodka devil in my 20s. And I'm good. I'm 
I yeah, they're too they're too sweet for me. I totally get it. During her box office reign, Shirley starred in such hits as The Little Colonel from 1935, Curly Top from 1935, Wee Willie Winky from 37, Heidi also 37, and Rebecca of Stony Brook Farm from 1938. Each year on the Fox lot, the studio threw her a massive birthday party, which would show rap presents from people from all over the world. Scores of her fellow child actors and children of important people would be invited. And of course, it was all filmed for publicity's sake. The presents she received would be donated to orphanages. So Shirley never saw what she was sent. I really hope they like checked what actually was there because, you know, people sent creepy shit. But yeah, like what was she going to do? Keep all these presents? That child probably had everything she could have possibly wanted, including a tiny little car that she could drive around the the temple compound and the back lot. So, you know, she was fine. Around this time, it seemed that everywhere you went, you'd see something about Shirley Temple. She was ingrained in everything. The Little Princess from 1939 was Shirley's last major hit and 20th Century Fox's answer to The Wizard of Oz from MGM. Fun fact, MGM originally wanted Shirley to play Dorothy, the role that went to Judy Garland, but 20th Century Fox refused to loan her out. By 1940, at 12 years of age, though the studio was claiming she was 11, Shirley Temple had made 43 films. But the worst thing about child actors for film studios is eventually they grow up. When Shirley began to hit puberty, her popularity with audiences waned. As an adolescent, she appeared in The Big Blue Bird from 1940, which performed poorly at the box office as Shirley was shown as a nuanced little girl and not the sweet little angel that tap dances and cuddles with grown men. Apparently, they didn't want like an actual realistic representation of a little girl. They wanted the weird other thing. Young People from 1940 was Shirley's last film with 20th Century Fox. The star was fifth in the box office ratings, so still top 10, but despite that, Fox did not renew her contract, which was fine by Shirley overall. She had enrolled in a prestigious private girls' school after years of private set schooling. She would still have to have bodyguards, even though she was at a normal school, but had a much more normal life compared to the isolation she'd experienced on the Fox lot. In 1942, at the age of 14, Shirley appeared in the film Miss Annie Rooney. The film would feature her first on-screen love story and her first romantic kiss, which was a kiss on the cheek. Naturally, a row of photographers was there to capture the alleged moment baby Shirley got her first on-screen kiss. Dickie Moore, the actor who was cast to kiss her, described the moment as quote-unquote traumatic. The image appeared on newspapers all over the country in the coming week. That following year, Shirley signed with David O. Selznick, who did let her try out some slightly different roles, though he did not want the star to be seen as promiscuous in any way. Given how many pictures I saw of grown men kissing this child's cheek in the last couple of weeks, I'm guessing he didn't see the irony in that statement. They'd low-key kind of been sexualizing this child for years. Shirley married actor and Marine Sergeant John Agar Jr. in 1945 when she was only 17 years old. The marriage shocked people as that was surely something Shirley was too young to do. Arguably, she was too young, of course, but semantics. The marriage yielded one child, a daughter named Linda Susan, before ending in divorce in 1949. When Linda was born in 1948, Selznick offered the baby a film contract, which Shirley turned down. At age 19 in 1947, despite being a married woman, Shirley continued playing goody-goody roles with The Bachelor and The Bobby Soxer. 
Though the film received critical praise, audiences struggled to accept that their baby Shirley was growing up. Following her 1948 role opposite John Wayne in Fort Apache, Shirley found it increasingly difficult to land major film roles. 1949's A Kiss for Corliss would be her last feature film. Shirley remarried in 1950 to San Francisco businessman Charles Alden Black, who had never seen a Shirley Temple film when they'd met. When they married, Shirley added her husband's last name to hers, becoming Shirley Temple Black. The couple had two children, Charles and Lori. Shirley and Charles would remain married until his death from complications of bone marrow disease in 2005. After acting, Shirley devoted her life to causes that she believed in. She occasionally appeared on TV, including her own brief series, Shirley Temple Storybook, which aired in 1958. Overall, Shirley Temple is actually known more for her iconic image rather than her films. As I've alluded to throughout the episode, they have really not aged well, and her post-Hollywood work more or less ended in the late 80s, early 90s, and was less glamorized. Watching clips from the majority of Shirley Temple's films in 2023 does elicit some ick, I will warn you. I will have a watch list, but there there is some ick. I will let you make that decision for yourself. That's just my opinion. But this five, six-year-old is being handled by grown men as if she were an adult. And even if she had been an adult woman, still not great. It's uncomfortable no matter what what the context or the era. And bad shit did happen to her on these sets. It's not just like things that were implied. There were actually some shady things that happened and accusations made from Shirley herself. So mild trigger warning, the next minute or two, I'm going to mention some of the child mistreatment and attempted assaults that occurred to Shirley during her Hollywood years. The ones she's admitted to anyway, or the ones that she told the public about, not admitted to. You don't admit to having a crime being done to you. In her autobiography, Child Star, Shirley would describe the baby burlesques series as, quote, a cynical exploitation of our childish innocence. She also claimed that if any of the preschool age children misbehaved on set, they were locked in a windowless booth called the punishment box and were forced to sit on a solid block of ice. Shirley stated that she was no stranger to this box. In addition to the Vatican thing I mentioned at the beginning, which did happen, people also claimed that Shirley's hair was fake. Fans who managed to get close enough, these were mostly adults, mind you, would yank on this child's hair to see if they could rip her quote-unquote wig off. But Shirley's hair was real, for whatever that's worth, though she probably wished it was fake, as it took nightly vinegar washes which burnt her eyes to achieve that look. When she was 12 years old, she had a meeting with MGM producer Arthur Freed, who exposed himself to her. At 17, Selznick tried to sexually assault her. Any one of these things could have led this girl to the bottom of a bottle in order to deal with these and likely many other traumas. But instead, her life began an entirely new chapter. In 1967, at the age of 39, Shirley ran unsuccessfully for a U.S. congressional seat. From 1969 to 1970, she served as a U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Shirley was appointed ambassador to Ghana in 1974. Two years later, she became chief of protocol of the United States, a position that she would hold until 1977. She never downplayed her child star past throughout any of this and considered it an asset for her work. She would later state that if Shirley Temple Black couldn't get something done, then baby Shirley could certainly open the door for Shirley Temple Black to get something done. And more often than not, that's exactly pretty much how it shook out. 
Shirley's toughest critic in this era would be Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. After Gerald Ford named Shirley ambassador to Ghana in 1974, Kissinger quipped he had always wanted to, quote, get movie stars into a position where they had to come when I called them. And now that I've solved the problem, I'm married. Never mind the fact that when she was a movie star, she was a child. So he was just a blast. Or is a blast. He's actually still alive. He's literally 100 years old, but we're not getting into Henry Kissinger today. In 1988, Shirley became the only person to date to achieve the rank of Honorary U.S. Foreign Service Officer. From 1989 to 1992, she entered into yet another public service role, this time as ambassador to Czechoslovakia after being appointed by President George Bush, the first Bush. In December 1998, Shirley's lifetime accomplishments were celebrated at the Kennedy Center Honors, which were held at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C. In 2006, she received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Screen Actors Guild. You'll hear most of her speech or all of her speech in a minute or two. After a life served entertaining and serving her country, Shirley Temple Black died on February 10th, 2014 at her home near San Francisco, California of pneumonia and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD. She was 85 years old. Following her death, Shirley's family and caregivers issued a statement that read, quote, We salute her for a life of remarkable achievements as an actor, as a diplomat, and most importantly as our beloved mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, and adored wife of 55 years. Shirley Temple Black was the biggest star in the world for nearly half a decade, an icon who spent the majority of her life in the service of her country and the world at large. But for most people, she's immortalized as a little girl, tap dancing to the delight of a depression-addled world. I'm indeed honored to receive the Life Achievement Award from my peers, the Screen Actors Guild. I'm out of breath, this is exciting. I haven't been down here for a while. <clears throat> when I was three years old, I was delighted to be told that I was an actress, even though I didn't know what an actress was. I've been blessed with three wonderful careers, motion pictures and television, wife, mother, and grandmother, and she's here tonight, and diplomatic services for the United States government. I have one piece of advice. Thank you. I'm proud of that too. About 30 years in the Foreign Service as an honorary Foreign Service officer. I have one piece of advice for those of you who want to receive the Lifetime Achievement Award. Start early. <laughs> My love to all of you. Thank you for honoring me. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. 
In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I very much appreciate it. I also got the buy me a coffee where you buy me a coffee. I had home cold brew again because I am a pumpkin this weekend. Um, I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, the life and legacy of a young actor whose horrific management at the hands of his parents would change the laws of how child actors are paid. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.